kind of stuff the past few days trying to get over it, drinking emergency and there you uh, go. Whatnot well, the good, good, good news is you may have a jump on the winter flu then. Mm. <laughs> That's the good news, huh? <laughs> yeah. Hey everyone, here we are, first episode of 2018, and we've got some great podcasts lined up this year. And we are pleased to tell you that we are gonna be bringing you the Kentucky Derby Legend Series once again. This is where we get to sit in the audience and listen to Fred Minnick interview some bourbon icons. Remember, these podcasts won't air for quite some time after the series has come to a close, so be sure to see it in person by getting your tickets at derbymuseum.org. Thank you to all the new people that have signed up in the past week for sponsoring this podcast on Patreon. I hope that many more of you take that 2018 pledge to help support some of your favorite entertainment because the monthly donation goes a long way in keeping this podcast running. Plus, we are only a little bit away from the point of actually giving away a free bottle of bourbon every single month. So visit patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash bourbon pursuit and donate $5 or more per month to get entered into the monthly drawing. As a reminder, please fill out our audience survey. It only takes three minutes and gets you entered to win a $50 Amazon gift card. Go to bourbonpursuit.com slash survey and select all the brands that you've learned about because of this show. With that, enjoy this week's episode. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 a cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. 
And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 Welcome back to an episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast, the official podcast of bourbon, also the number one podcast of bourbon if you're searching on iTunes. And today it's just Kenny here, and I am uh, I'm riding solo. And, you know, I, I was actually talking to our guest before we started hitting the record button, and we've had a lot of different master distillers on the show before. And it's always an interesting idea when we have to try to figure out, well, what questions can we ask this time? And I've, I've, been meaning to to really gauge our audience, you know, and that's kind of what we've been doing a lot lately is is trying to figure out how can we kind of crowdsource this a little bit more and have more of our our audience be bigger participants. So I put out a question on Facebook today that said, if you could ask a master distiller one question, what would it be? And so we uh, we're going to take a lot of those into into consideration today when we're going through this. Um, we've also had. Uh, somebody else on the show that was from this prior distillery as well. And so I think this is a, a good segue into going ahead and introducing our guests. So today we have Shane Baker. Shane is the master distiller at Wilderness Trail Distillery. And uh, so Shane, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, cool. So, uh, you know, before we begin and talk about Wilderness Trail, uh, about bourbon and master distilling, where did, where did kind of you get your start and what kind of got you into whiskey business or anything like that in general? Well, uh, believe it or not, it goes back to uh, even before I was born. Uh, my family has been in the filling here in Kentucky uh, for quite a while. My grandmother actually met my grandfather. Uh, she was 14 and he was 16. And uh, they met at Kentucky River Stilling in Jessamine County. So that's where they, they both worked uh, back in that time. So if it hadn't been for whiskey, uh, they wouldn't have come together. Uh, my mom wouldn't have been born. I wouldn't have been here. So <laughs> it, it, go, it goes back as far as that. But but honestly, uh, you know, my grandmother, she started there uh, and she retired from Stitzer Weller uh, up in Louisville when they shut the facility down. So she spent her entire career there. And, and, and honestly, whiskey has been a part of my life uh, growing up. I mean, we used to go to her house and there was always just, you know, samples bottles or cases of bottles or special bottles. And we would go to the Kentucky Derby with her and she would be dressed up like Bonnie Walker. You know, she was, she was always doing these trade you know, industry trade things that now, you know, I find myself and, and our teams doing the same exact thing. So it, it goes back as that uh, my career, uh, you know, path wasn't initially in that. I didn't stay on the, the whiskey nipple, if you will, from, from that to on. Um, you know, I went on kind of into an engineering path and I'm a mechanical engineer by trade. And, uh, so I, uh, you know, I started off as what most people do looking for a job. And, uh, when I got out of school and so I went from, uh, IBM to Toyota and in some, some different places and, and all the time, you know, you're, you're networking, you're learning how to do things. Um, and one of my fortuitous uh, crossroads, if you will, was running in who is now Dr. Patrick Heist, 
Uh, he wasn't doctor back then. He was just uh, our lead singer in our rock band. So, <laughs> That's pretty so, funny. Yeah, yeah. So I watched him kind of going through school. I was kind of, you know, had a career job and and we were trying to make the go of the rock band, but but always talking about whiskey and Kentucky bourbon and, you know, leaning back on some of my family's experiences and, you know, looking at old bottles. And, and I seen that he shared the same passion I did. And uh, so that ultimately led to us, you know, coming together, forming firm solutions, you know, over a decade ago. And, uh, and then ultimately getting enough uh, cash in our pockets to, to start the distillery. So it, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a cool path. So uh, let's go a little bit back in your history right there. So, you know, you said your mom worked at Stitzel Weller. What was she doing there uh, during that time? So uh, my grandmother retired as the warehouseman. She was the controller over all of the barrels at Stitzel Weller. So you can go there today and ask the, the gentleman who's the who used to work there at the, he's still at you know the guard security guard just, Mr. Perry right yeah yeah yep just ask for Doris Ballard and uh, and he will remember her uh, she was a sparky lady always telling jokes uh, but she was in charge of um, of all the barrels and really an interesting thing to her when she started working at such a young age obviously she had to to quit school. Uh, to go to work at that time. And one of the things that my grandfather outlined was, hey, you, you got to get an education. You, you can't go work for this distillery. And uh, But she was a whiz-bang at math, and, and just she really impressed them in a summer job. And so they committed to, um, I guess me and my great-grandfather, that they would provide her the best education that they could. And she ultimately ended up being controller over the one of the most famous distilleries in, in the United States. Well, that's impressive. I mean, and so yeah, so she, that was your kind of, I guess, you know, your family lineage into it. Is any other lineage into uh, into the whiskey too? Well, you know, uniquely when my grandmother obviously worked there, uh, my entire family worked there. So that's uh, about anybody connected in, in that. Uh, but outside of that, uh, you know, living here in Kentucky, living and breathing uh, the Kentucky air, uh, you just have bourbon in your lungs. Uh, and so it's always been a part of what I wanted to do. And and really a part of the day to day because you know we live here and, and often we sometimes take that for granted. Uh, I see people all the time, uh, like in Lexington, and I'm like, "How many times you been to Keeneland?" And they're like, "Huh? I've never been there." <laughs> it's a, and, and it's a Lexington staple, right? You, and it's, exactly, exactly. So we, we sometimes take those things for granted, but I, but I through I think uh, you know growing up in it was constantly reminded of how uh, impactful and important uh, the bourbon industry has been to Kentucky. And, you know, a lot of jobs and a lot of growth. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and we'll talk about Wilderness Trail for a second. So, uh, you know, you kind of segued into it, talked about how, you know, your mechanical engineering path led you into uh, Pat Heiss, who was another previous guest on the show that did a big deep dive into yeast strains and, uh, you know, fermentation and some other kind of cool stuff. Uh, so what what kind of got to the point where you said, OK, well, I guess let's let's just start distilling and see what happens. Well, you know, uniquely, that's what we wanted to do first. Um, we looked at it. You know, I have a, a good engineering and business background. And, and we looked at it. We put together our business plan and, and we put our two families, uh, you know, worth of jars together. And we're like, hey, we can't afford this. I um, mean, and, and if we can, you know, we're, we're not going to make our mark. You know, we're, we're not going to be uh, have enough to put back, you know, the production. We can buy equipment, but we won't have any money to put it back in barrels. And so it's a huge investment 
So um, it, it really was kind of at the time when when we said, hey, we, we want to stay involved in this industry. We want to ultimately get there. And how can we do that short of just go getting a job at a distillery? And being the entrepreneurs that we were, uh, we, we felt like we could go at a different angle. Ultimately, that was Firm Solutions that really gave us the aptitude and uh, the fortitude to, to do Wilderness Trail. So do you consider yourself a craft distiller in this, uh, this new movement? Is that where you Absolutely. would categorize yourself? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, that word has been abused and used and, and maybe criticized in a lot of things. But uh, but I can use that word simply because uh, I personally am involved in every part of our distillery. I, I submitted the, the federal application. Uh, I created the mash bills. I'm over tasting things off the steel. Uh, when somebody needs something, you know, it's coming uh, to us. And And all of that is not from a playbook. I mean, we're problem solving real time. We're understanding our business. Uh, we know where we're going. We're trying to put the pieces to get there. So, you know, all of that really takes, you know, an art and craftsmanship and a lot of hard work to get there. And, and I think, uh, you know, when you're at that level, you know, no one's doing this for us. Uh, we consider ourselves part of the craft industry. And if, if memory serves me correct, you guys are located uh, around Danville, Kentucky, right? Yes, correct. Just south of Lexington. So how big's the operation right now? Is it two? I mean, you're going live with tours. Like what, what, what kind, what do you, what do you expect when you start rolling into wilderness trail? Well, right now uh, it's rather unique uh, because we're at our new location, which we actually relocated here about a year and a half uh, out off of Lebanon road. And so you would come here and you would see we're nestled on 34 acres of rolling bluegrass. Uh, we've got the, the Forkland uh, knobs out in front of us. So it's very picturesque. It's a beautiful site. It's extremely peaceful out here. So as soon as you pull onto our grounds, you, you've got this just awesome feeling that you want to hang out and, and just see what, what else there is to learn. Uh, from there, you would see uh, on, on the onset our large rickhouse. So we've got a 10,000-barrel rickhouse right off of the road as you're coming up our drive. So that starts giving you a sense that, hey, there's something going on here. And uh, then you see kind of the main distillery. We've got a beautiful old home built in 1859 that serves as our visitor center. And then scattered around that are more rick houses and bottling warehouses. Um, and so, you know, we're giving tours uh, Tuesday through Saturday, every hour on the hour. And we're a part of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail Craft Tour. You know, this year already to date, we've penciled in about 55,000 visitors uh, to little old Danville here. And uh, part of that uh, actually facetiously was due to 28,000 people here for the Kentucky State Barbecue Festival uh, just a weekend or two ago. So uh, there was definitely uh, controlled chaos while that was going on. Uh, well, nothing but, like, uh, you know, having some ribs and some brisket and sitting back, sipping some whiskey, right? So Yeah, yeah, listen to some music. It was, it was an awesome event. Um, but, you know, our tours give you a really kind of an insight uh, view behind the scenes, if you will, uh, not to really the standard tour of, hey, percent corn, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, by the time people have gotten here, uh, we often find that they've been on a, a several tours. And so we want to give them an experience that they really remember. And, and basically that comes down to, um, you know, showing kind of the science side behind the operation. Where, where do, you know, we work with the yeast? Where do we work with actually our own quality? How do we do those things? Uh, and then you get hands in to our, our 
our milling to our cooking to our fermenting and then right up in your face uh, you can get an opportunity to see distillation and even if you're lucky uh, there might be some samples coming back from the rick house on those days so those are definitely uh, good days to be on the tours so but beyond that there's also a lot of dirt turned over we're, we're massively in construction right now who is see- it? yeah like i said we've been in construction for the past six years and <laughs> And it doesn't have any, uh, you know, end in sight. Uh, but as soon as we get a good plot of green ga- grass, we turn it over. And uh, so right now we're actually uh, building an additional 20,000 uh, barrel uh, warehouse. And we're also expanding the distillery. Um, I'm actually staring at the hole in the ground, which is the, the home of the, the fermentation building. So we're actually dropping in an additional 36-inch column uh, six new 20,000-gallon fermenters, two new 10,000-gallon cookers, and taking our production from 30 barrels a day to 140 barrels a day. So we've got some considerable uh, construction going on right now. So you're you're looking at almost two and a half to three x, uh, you know, increase of size of everything you got going on. Are you are you thinking of you are you running eight hours a day, 24 hours a day? Like what's what's the 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 future aspect right there? Yeah, so what led us to that is a couple of things. One, we're already running around the clock and maximizing our current equipment, which we have an 18-inch column uh, that runs, you know, about 10 gallons a minute. Uh, the new still runs about 40 gallons a minute. Um, so it, it, it really comes down to a couple of things. One, uh, we're getting in a better position of paying back our initial investment to kind of move our paychecks, if you will. I mean, we're, we're, we're self-funded, you know, again, we're, we're just a family owned operation. So firm solutions as, as it grows, we simply cash those checks into whiskey barrels. And so where we're at is we're now able to, you know, put back more whiskey as we're looking out in advance brand growing. Uh, we're, we're hoping we're laying down the stock that's going to be ready in 10 years, you know, those type of things. And so, um, that, that is really helping us, you know, expansion as well as uh, we've we've actually started taking on a little bit of contract production for some other brands and uh, we've seen that as a great opportunity uh, not only to help with our production but also expand at the same time I mean I've seen that a lot uh, just in the industry in general it seems that if, if if somebody is starting up a new craft distillery they are not doing their own spirits anymore I mean they take the advantage of of being able to uh, do contract distilling only because yeah you can maximize uh, the amount of profit that you can get out of these stills uh, mm-hmm. and and it seems that people are more than happy to sit there and uh, you know start contracting out start creating their own labels waiting time sourcing your NGP whatever they need to do to actually start uh, turning over money so uh, it's a it seems like a pretty solid business plan that uh, you know a lot of people are, are going through right now absolutely I mean you know the the irony is. Um, you know, years ago, we had the option of either A, taking our investment in starting firm solutions or taking our investment in doing what a large part of uh, the fledgling side of our industry, which is go buy barrels, you know, set on it, try to get that brand growing until you get on your feet and then, you know, go build your distillery. And the, the fallacy in that plan for us is it wouldn't have been ours. Uh, I mean, we take pride in the grain that we use, which is from cattle. And it's, you know, it's all grade corn. So, you know, we, we take pride in the yeast that we use and the mash bills that we created. And we just didn't see any path that uh, the, the current market could emulate that. 
So that just didn't work for us. But it does work for a lot of other people who who may be just less um, uh, or just new to the industry, you know, trying to get in uh, on the industry. Absolutely. I mean, there's got to be a, you got to have a different angle on it too, right? And so, Absolutely. you know, one thing we had Pat on, he talked about all the different kinds of yeast that you guys have. Uh, and, you know, you didn't mention the type of corn, but I mean, what other kind of things that are you all doing at, at Wilderness Trail that kind of sets you apart or makes you a little bit unique and you know, maybe stand out from the crowd a little bit? Oh, th- there's, there's several things. Um, you know, one is the grain that we use. Uh, we don't pull our grain from, a, from an open elevator or a consolidated elevator. I can take you to the plot of ground that our grains are grown on. And, and they're able to grow with us. I mean, they're growing close to 2,000 acres uh, this, uh, this coming year. So the importance of that, they're a seed farmer. So other farmers buy their seed to grow their grains uh, from these guys. And so it's all controlled pollination and not to get technical, it means consistent flavor. So one advantage for us is that consistent flavor that comes from our grains. Number two, uh, we use a sweet mash infusion cooking process. And that is, you know, that is different than the typical sour mash that you hear all the time. But the sweet mash process uh, is just known to create a softer, sweeter distillate. And by using infusion mashing, uh, we're able to keep all of that intact and create such a a soft, proper distillate that literally our 135 off the steel is like drinking some people's 90 proof. I mean, it is just just that smooth. And so I think our sweet mash and our, which is just basically our process, infusion mashing on our cooking, and then lastly, um, we have, uh, we were actually the first in the industry to be chemical free, which means that our boiler is actually a pharmaceutical grade boiler uh, from Sellers Engineering, uh, built right here in Danville. And it's called a clean steam, which means if I were to give you a glass of our clean steam, no chemical added uh, boiler, and uh, let's say some condensate from another boiler, what would you drink? And, and I'm not just saying that to, to say, hey, there's put fear into things. Polar chemicals are safe. They're food grade. They're there to reduce scale, which we have very hard water here in Kentucky. But what, but what that is, is there is, there's a taste there. Uh, and what you taste in our spirit is pure Kentucky water. And, and we feel that our sweet mash, our infusion mashing, and our clean steam process, because our cook process is direct injected steam, distillation in our column steel for direct injected steam. So what we're drinking, part of that is steam condensate, you know, what came out of that boiler. And we feel all of those things combined completely set us apart. And we've had, you know, a lot of people come in and, and validate that uh, right off the steel as well as out of the barrels. So we've, we've talked about the difference between sweet mash and sour mash on the show before, you know, sweet mash is basically, uh, you know, you, you clean everything out, you have all the yeah. ingredients every single time and you're not reusing part of the mash that was there before. But infusion mash is something that I I've never particularly heard of before. Can you, can you explain a little bit more about what infusion mashing really is? Absolutely. Infusion mashing simply means that we cook all of our grains at the proper gelatinization temperature which means that let's say corn, if you were to cook corn and, and the purpose of gelatinization is to convert those starches into sugars, you know, kind of get those lines of chains breaking down. And when you look at corn, corn actually gelatinizes at 178 to 180 degrees, 
we cook our corn up to 190 degrees. And so that BTPE, which is just a, a letter for, you know, how much of that gelatinization did we come up with? Um, we cook up to that temperature. Let's say our small grains, the gelatinization temperature for our, our wheats or our rice are in the, the 150 and 160 range. Our malts being, you know, 140 to 145 range. So if we were to cook those grains at a higher temperature, which the, there's an industry norm, uh, and this is where we get involved a lot on the firm solution side, but there's an industry norm just to boil the hell out of the grains. And, and while that may be easy and, and people are thinking about sterilization and different things, you know, they're missing the boat on quality because you create unbranched chain amino acids when you degregate things by boiling them or cooking them beyond their temperature. So it's kind of like, you know, cooking cornbread in the pan. You know, you, you're, if it gets too hot, you're going to burn that and you're going to alter the flavor of what, what is in there. And so what we're trying to do by creating branch chain amino acids, that is what our yeast are consuming to turn into that soft spirit. So it's kind of like we are what we eat. Uh, we want to give our yeast exactly what they need uh, to make ethyl alcohol and not a lot more fusels, which are a lot of the higher alcohols. And they get that from unbranched chain amino acids. So in summary, it comes back to we're properly cooking our grains. We're not overcooking them. We're not wasting energy uh, to do that. We're using the right amount of energy to gelatinize our grains at the right temperature. And so that's infusion mashing. So what's the temperature that it is before you're considered burning at that point? And then how does that compare? You said it was like around, you guys do 190, but you said industry standard was like 170, 180 or something like that? No, no. Industry standard would be to boil that. So they would take it up to 212 degrees. You know, oh, okay. Okay. 210. So by taking it beyond uh, that, you know, that proper gelatinization temperature, that's when you start degrading uh, the grains at that point. So very simply, you know, any temperature higher than the, the actual gelatinization temperature would be in a degradation, degradation zone. And is this take a, is it makes it a longer process, same amount of time? Is it? Uh, actually, if anything, it's a shorter process because A, you know, let's say we're heating up our cooker. You know, we got a 4,000 gallon cooker. It's going to take us longer to heat that to 212 degrees than it would be to 190. So it's actually less time. Uh, we're not wasting energy. Uh, we actually got Kentucky Manufacturer of the Year for the utilization of the energy as well as our greenness. You know, we're a zero discharge facility, but really it comes down to we're properly using energy and recycling energy inside of the facility to save on the environment and make a damn good whiskey at the same time. That's a that's a pretty interesting kind of uh, angle I want to take on that too because we've always had people that want to talk about you know the sustainability of bourbon like what is green bourbon and all this other kind of stuff right so kind of talk yes. about what you're doing in regards of that you know when you say zero discharge and being able to take uh, energy that's being produced off something and transfer it to something else yeah so very simply you know obviously in terms of the environment we utilize part of that environment we utilize utilize a lot of water. Uh, in our process, we utilize a lot of energy, you know, so that energy is obviously being produced somewhere. And so, for example, uh, we uh, created a, a coil system that we put inside of our stillage tank. So the stillage that comes out of the bottom of the steel is 200 and something degrees. You know, it's spent grains that's going into our stillage, our spent tank. And so that heats up that coil and gives us free hot water. 
So all of the hot water, all of our processed water that we use is heated by the actual stillage that we've already, you know, distilled. So we're reclaiming that, that energy and heat. For example, when we do our cook process, uh, instead of bringing all of our water up uh, to temperature, uh, we actually do an old German technique to where we cook very thick uh, on the onset. And then we use that balance of that water to use it to help cool it down. So in essence, our chiller does not even kick on to start cooling our cooker until we're within the last 15 to 20 minutes of the process. We use actually cold water on the onset of each of those additions to cool that tank down. So again, we're using less energy all the way around, which is better for the environment. Um, and then also in terms of any discharge, we collect our condensate that comes out of our doubler. We create that in a hot water tank. We use that hot water back into our cook process. Uh, all of our waste products, which is our stillage, goes to a local farmer and feeds, you know, about now, I think five or 600 head of cattle. So, you know, that's totally sustainable in terms of uh, actually part of that farm as we're part of our, our corn is grown. So it's kind of, you know, that goes in a full loop, but it's really about uh, us utilizing uh, good engineering to accomplish the task with lower cost. And that's why, you know, when we look at um, the industry, you know, we're ready for the industry, whatever the industry is, we plan on being around for a hundred years or more. And so uh, looking out ahead of us, we, we have a competitive advantage in terms of how we're producing our whiskeys. And I think it would come even more full circle if that, uh, if that farmer brought you a few T-bones just to say thank you, right? <laughs> now that, yeah, I agree with. <laughs> yeah, because he's, he's always looking for uh, what his corn's producing. So. Absolutely. So um, I, another question for you. You know, either, um, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, you're making batches or looking at barrels or anything like that, like, is, do you, do you find that, that doing the batch and the mash process is always very consistent? And however, it's the final product that's either in the barrel or something else that, that you kind of like say, like, this one's more special than the next or something like that? Or do you think you can really pinpoint it during, say, like the, the mash process? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. 
Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Do you find that, that doing the batch and the mash process is always very consistent? It, however, it's the final product that's either in the barrel or something else that, that you kind of like say, like this one's more special than the next or something like that. Or do you think you can really pinpoint it during, say, like the, the mash process? Well, you know, it's unique uh, that we see it actually on both ends. Um, for example, uh, to answer one question, what we do see, which is what we really strive for, is consistency. Uh, and it is definitely one thing that the column still does for you. You know, you feed it properly and you do things on the front end of the process, such as cooking properly each time consistently, fermentation is consistent. You'll end up with a very, very consistent tasting distillate. So we have that consistency out of the gate. Uniquely, we can change that consistency by simply changing our yeast, you know, changing our mash bill changing how we bring stuff off the steel. So, you know, that's very unique uh, in terms of how we can do that. But in the whiskeys we make, um, you know, we make basically three different whiskeys. We make a weeded uh, bourbon, a rye-based bourbon, and a rye whiskey. And each of those three whiskeys are extremely consistent coming across the steel. And that's where, for example, Pat brings a lot of things to the plate to where that quality control, to where, you know, he's responsible for, you know, basically what's going on in the lab. Are yeast happy? You know, are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? Uh, are they creating something right or wrong? And then that's where what we see is we are constantly, you know, just flatline. It's almost like Groundhog Day. So boring because it's the same, you know, and that's really what we want to see. But where we do see the biggest variances, which you pointed out, is when we start tasting in the barrels. Uh, we use Independent Stave uh, Company for our barrels. And, uh, and while you would think, you know, every barrel is going to be uh, off of the lot, you know, the barrel sitting right next to the barrel on the truck, you know, literally we've done tests like that. They can be dramatically different, uh, even coming down the production line and maybe even sharing some wood from the same tree. Uh, we've seen differences and variances in that. So the barrel does, you know, what we, I think the industry has always said, I don't think it's the 80-20, uh, but it's definitely a 60-40 with the barrel in favor of really shaping bourbon into what it becomes. Good. I'm glad to hear somebody that has a, has a stance and good opinion on it. Cause everybody's like, that's a, that's something I'm not going to touch with a 10 foot pole and put my, uh, my stance behind it. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's reality. We're, we're, we're the guys with the science. So uh, we've kind of been known as the myth busters in the industry. We do a lot of research uh, and if any, paralysis by analysis around here and and again you hang out with pat long enough and you'll see the desk is piled high full of papers where we're analyzing what we just analyzed and because usually when you start digging you start finding more questions and it leads to more knowledge and more answers and, and i think we've done a good job of that with a lot of our collaboration university of kentucky set the boat over there as a great program to where we're looking at you know wood studies and different things and we're learning a lot right now it's amazing how old this industry is and yet we're still learning a lot about maturing spirits and barrels so you know we had pat on before and uh, i don't i don't remember exactly how many the number was 200 or 600 different yeast strains you guys have or something that like that going on uh, yeah I, I know it's up there uh 
but you know, when you talk about, you know, you have your weeded, you have your rye bourbon, and then you got your rye whiskey. Are you using the same yeast strain in all of them? Are you kind of mixing and uh, kind of experimenting right now? Or you think you guys have really like dialed it down? You know exactly what your, what your percentages are and all that other kind of stuff. Well, believe it or not, we actually use, um, and, and I'll just exclude contract production because contract production, we would allow someone to choose their yeast strain. So, you know, if you throw that in the mix, we could be using up to 20 different yeast strains. Uh, but we really use uh, four different yeast strains. Uh, because Beyond uh, our three whiskeys, we also make rum, uh, which we use a particular yeast strain for. And our three whiskeys, we actually use um, uh, different yeast for. And our vodka comes from our weeded bourbon distillate. So that kind of shares the same yeast that what we use for that. Interesting. Okay. So um, I guess kind of kind of going on to this a little bit more, this was another good question that came up. And, I, you know, this is more or less along the lines of like the, the, the source of, uh, sorry, I say the graining, uh, grain system. So Adam Kessel asks, he says, I'd like to hear about crop yield and the agricultural footprint that bourbon and whiskey kind of has and what safeguards are being put on for, say, like long-term success, making sure crops are always going to be, um, you know, supplied and everything like that. Very good question. Uh, that a particular question was a, a big project for us this year as we prepare for our expansion next year. So, you know, we have been with Caverndale since day one. Uh, and obviously they grew a certain amount of grains. Um, we started looking at the amount of grains that we were be going to from 100 uh, and actually from 200 bushels a day to over 1,000 bushels a day. Um, you know, everybody's eyebrows were raising up on how can we sustain this and, and still keep it local and so on. And so um, really that came down to, you know, go back years ago when we actually selected the varietals of grains that we're using, we selected those for flavor and yield. So we know that the seed that we spec that is going to be grown is going to yield that, that 180 to 200 bushel, uh, you know, per, per acre type of yield, which means that from an economical sense, that's going to be right in, in line with what we want from our farmer on, on the corn. Um, when we started looking at, you know, okay, hey, how much can you grow? we ended up having to say, we got to pull in some more local farmers. And fortunately, we're right here in Boyle County to where, you know, we've been on the edge of the bourbon industry and actually in a lot of cases, either pulling stillage from other distilleries or supplying grains to some of the distilleries. But basically our infrastructure here was ripe to grow for that. And so it was very easy for us to line up a couple more farmers to pull in all the grains that we need to grow. And each of those farmers uh, were the new farmers that we've added on are probably we're only using maybe 30 percent of their capacity, if you will, in terms of growing acreage. So we look at that as to help them grow more where the sustainability comes in by being able to help some of these other farmers now come on board and supply grain. What they're able to do is to now start investing into their farm to where it's gonna be in better shape for the future. They're buying equipment, they're putting up new grain bins, they're creating things that rather they're doing business with us or somebody else, they're gonna be able to utilize those assets to keep farming, to keep you know that family farm in uh, in their name, you know, that type of thing. So I guess how long do you, or should I say, as a, as a farmer in this, this industry, 
And, you know, I don't know exactly how much competition that you have with uh, around there in Danville with uh, other distilleries or anything like that. But like, how, what is what is like the amount of ratio of, you know, say like farmers to distillers and not just around you, but anywhere else? Do you think that, you know, people are starting to feel this strain of uh, increased competition? And now that corn itself might be a, a hotter commodity than it was, you know, three or four years ago. Well, you know, uniquely the uh, the gorilla in the distilling industry, the fuel alcohol producers, you know, they they already um, kind of ran that race and created the the result that we have today. So back in the fuel alcohol boom, when the renewable fuel standard demanded that ten to fifteen percent of our petroleum be blended with ethanol, you know, there was a big crush on corn. Uh, and, you know, bushels went up to $9 a bushel. We couldn't grow enough. There's not enough land in the world. You know, all of these horror stories. And the reality of it is uh, each that industry has grown, uh, there has been an excess production of corn to the point that when we do all of our exports, when we do all of our internal U.S., we still have excess surplus supplies of corn. So, so that's just on the surface of there are some big commercial farms that, you know, have developed since then that really drive a lot of grain. Um, when you look at it locally, it's, I wouldn't say it's moved really hard in that direction, but more and more farmers are moving from, let's say, I had, uh, you know, used to be a tobacco farmer, and now they're growing grains. And maybe they used to grow a little bit of grains for cattle, but now they're seeing a bigger market in growing, let's say, rye. You know, to grow Kentucky rye right now, a farmer can really make a strong return in terms of a per acre basis. So we actually have about four farms around us planting a lot of rye, uh, not only for us, but to sell to other distilleries. Yeah, I was about to say it was because uh, rye isn't really a, a, a big commodity here. or It's just not a big thing here in Kentucky. You know, more, most of it's right. up north, right, or Midwest. Right. Yeah, yeah. Rye has historically not been a very good Kentucky crop. Wheat, we grow wheat like nobody's business around here. Uh, and corn the same way. You know, rye uh, usually likes a little cooler, drier climate. However, there are some hybrid ryes. There's a Ryman rye and a Kentucky heritage rye that is, uh, that is basically designed for our climate. And it creates a nice little plump uh, rye. Uh, I will have to say, you know, it may not be as pretty as some of those uh, Wisconsin or Minnesota or even Canadian rise, you know, in the bag. But let me tell you, the taste is there. Right. That's interesting. So, uh, you know, I guess what's your what's your take on like, you know, how long and, and maybe maybe it's just you all. Maybe you could talk about anybody else. But like at what point does it become you say like, OK, we can't we just can't do this like whole, um, you know, farm to bottle thing. We can't do local grains anymore. Like we gotta, we gotta start sourcing. We gotta make this bigger. Uh, what's, what do you think that that's inflection point for, for most companies, or do you think you'll hit it yourself one day? You know, I, I think it's, uh, it's regional dependent. Uh, for example, we, we honestly thought that we would be into that territory, uh, in 2018. I mean, here we are going from, you know, 24, 30 barrels uh, a day on two shifts to 150, you know, some odd barrels a day. And so immediately we're like, okay, we're going to start pulling in, you know, rye from here. You know, where do these guys get it from? Uh, we'll kind of look at the same later. And then after we actually sit down with our local farmers, we found that again, here in Boyle County and even some of our surrounding counties, we have the sustainability. We, we can keep growing 
even to the size that we grew, and we could probably triple our size and not run into an issue here. But now let's go 35 minutes west of here and to where we're getting into more of a concentration of smaller distilleries and larger distilleries. And I think those are the regions that are, you know, suppressed. They just, they just can't grow it. There's not enough farmers there. There's not enough land. Or if the demand is just too high. It's not necessarily there's not enough farmers there. It's just there's more demand there than there is supply. So I think it's a regional issue. And when you see new distilleries going up in pockets to where, you know, there's already a concentration of distilleries, they're going to experience problems from grain and also getting rid of spent grains. You know, another advantage we have here locally is that uh, all of our farmers in this area, you know, have not really been taking advantage of free spent grains that really puts weight on cattle. It really helps their pocketbook because, you know, it's just too far away almost. So now our local farmers have been and are going to see a big advantage to, you know, even the spent grain side. So I would have to say it's a regional issue and, and a new guy coming on board uh, would have to take that into consideration. I mean, it's one thing to cool to have Bardstown on the back of your label, but if you can't, uh, you know, run an efficient distillery because of the infrastructure there, um, then it's more challenging. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I want to talk about that relationship too, right? Because it sounds like there's a you have a you have a relationship with the farmers because you know you have to source his grains, you take your your off product, you, you give it to his cows. Uh, but you know, at also at some point, you're also you might have to turn away a few bushels. You might have to say like, no, this isn't meeting the spec. Like, how often do you how often do you turn something away? And uh, and and I guess how do you salvage that relationship or keep that alive too? Well, that's a good point uh, because it, it is a relationship. Uh, we know uh, Barry and Lee and Clyde uh, you know, on a first name basis. They're over here hanging out. We're over there. Uh, just recently. Uh, Barry Welty, who's the head, one of the head guys over there, he volunteered to cook steaks for our company picnic. So, I mean, the, beyond just a, a, a friendship relationship, you know, we're, we're really good friends with these folks. And, and I think what that is, is uh, we're straight shooters. They're straight shooters. If we've got issues, we go to them, we address it, and we solve the problem. Um, so we, we've never had any issues really to have to worry about that. Uh, there has been a time that where, let's say, before they started growing some rye or something, that we had them to source the rye for us. And uh, we had, my, and I guess earlier our history, we've rejected one load. Uh, and the rye came in, you know, a little, our guys caught a little bit of discoloration. Uh, and so from a visual standpoint, we said, hey, we got to get the doctor over here. And, uh, you know, Pat did his little magic thing, and we found out, you know, hey, this is concerning with an aphrotoxin level. And so we rejected that load. And, but that's the only time we've ever done it and it didn't come from our farmer. So, um, but if it did, and even at that time, we're just like, hey dude, you got to take this back. Uh, we're, we're not going to accept it. And they apologized. Uh, so we, we really, you know, I think as long as you maintain a good working relationship, you know that it's important for both you and the farmer to win. I mean, you know, we're, we're not trying to drag him through the bushes and get everything for free. He's got to make money in order to help us, you know, get our grains. And so I think the valued relationship there is really key. Uh, we can uh, we can agree to disagree and walk away still best friends. <laughs> no, I'm with you on that one. So uh, I kind of want to get your your opinion on this this whole boom that's happening, right? Because I think, 
you know, we, we can look around, you can see that, you know, yourselves, um, every major distiller, everybody's going through massive uh, expansions right now. There is an uptick of people that are getting into this, I don't know, so-called hobby uh, every single day. There are more people drinking bourbon every single day. Um, and it's, there's just a lot of momentum. So from, from your standpoint and where you sit, what do you think the, the craft industry needs to do to kind of keep this momentum going? Age inventory. They've, they've got to age stock. I mean, uh, I, I love what's going on in the industry. I love the growth. I love the innovation. I love the creativity. I love the pushing the envelope things and you know, just moving off of center on a few things. Um, but, but what I think we all enjoy is a good, mature whiskey. And I think um, it's a double-edged sword. Um, and the fact that, you know, in a lot of business models, you know, this is what you have to do. You either have to go source some older stock or you start off and, and you go as long as you can until, you know, you can, you can introduce that to the market. And, and I think what, um, what is going to mature in our industry, if it hasn't already started that, is that you can buy damn good bourbons all day long for 20 or $30. And, and that's because the good guys or the big guys make it good. I, I mean, they always have and always will. And, and I, I think for the craft industry to stay growing and to stay intact, um, it has got to bring and maintain a quality level equal, if not greater, than uh, the, the heritage staples in the industry. So, so I think, you know, it it's really comes down to, you know, for a good example, uh, and, and we are blessed and fortunate that we had the opportunity to do our uh, distillery this way. But we've never released a whiskey. And we've never released a whiskey for a reason. It's because it's not matured yet. Uh, I mean, we're hardcore purists when it comes to not only protecting the brand of Kentucky bourbon, but also I want you to enjoy it and I want you to come back for more. And uh, and I don't want it just to be a one night thing, you know, or a flyby. I, I want it to really be a part of, you know, Kentucky history. And so in doing that, you know, our opinions are, you know, we'll never release a whiskey below four years old. It, it just it just won't happen. We feel that's the beginning point to where bourbon start really getting good. And so we actually intend to try to age our stock to six to eight years. You know, next year is our four year mark. We're going to do a very limited release, you know, a bottled in bond, you know, or getting a good quality statement. But I think that's what the craft industry has got to do more of is continue to mature towards, um, you know, just a lot more older stock. I think that's where the industry is going. Do you think the industry is, is kind of hurting right now because of, you know, when some people say craft, they're like, oh, I don't know, like uh, craft, right? Like you kind of have this, like, you always have this like young taste to it, right? Because there's plenty of people out there and they'll, they'll put some that's only been aged 30 days or two years or less than yes. that. And, and, you know, not only that is it has a very, very high price tag, as you had mentioned, those big guys that have, you know, nice 25 $35 bottles and it was uh it's it's, it's hard to compete with that so do you yeah. think these, some of these craft whiskeys have kind of put a i don't know want to say a stain on it but they kind of they kind of uh have turned some consumers off to just the craft industry in general because of releasing unaged product um boy that's a trick question i may get in trouble for my answers but uh but i think it's a yes and no uh i, I think there are some excellent craft whiskeys out there 
Um, I think there are some bottles that that some folks have made on a very small scale that are worth $100 a bottle because they've got that much time, energy, and passion and love in it. I mean, I don't discount that at all. Uh, and, and the juice is good. I mean, you, you're going to find in some occasions, uh, hey, that was worth a, a Pappy Van Winkle bottle, you know, that type of thing. Um, but more often than not, do uh, you hear a lot of the horror stories on the other side. And, and it's because we have uh, been adapt or, or introduced to very mature bourbons, you know, and, and now we're all of a sudden being introduced to, to new whiskeys. And it's different. And, and maybe, you know, our palates are telling us, ah, hey, this isn't that good, when really maybe it's a great American whiskey for a two-year-old instead of our minds comparing it to what we've always drank, which is, you know, six and seven and eight-year-old. And so, so I think that's where the, the good and bad is. I, I think um, there are some cases where there may be uh, a few and definitely not a part of the whole that are trying to capitalize on the industry. You know, they've, they've, they've jetted in, they're trying to make a buck and they're doing it the fastest way they can. And they're not really worried about if, um, you know, if it's going to be there next year. I mean, it can come and go, you know, kind of like that hobby that you were talking about. That, that, that worries me to a sense because uh, an unknowing consumer could pick that up, uh, have, uh, you know, great marketing, buy the bottle and get turned away, like you said. And, and that's unfortunate because there are so many really good craft whiskeys, um, you know, small distillers and so on out there. Um, it, it, that, that's a difficult question because it's, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow sometimes. Absolutely. So I guess, um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of we'll take it back a little bit to, uh, to your distilling right here and we'll kind of start wrapping up a little bit. So uh, well, what mistakes have you all made? And have you learned from thus far in your, uh, you know, your journey, you know, leading into your fourth year, almost getting ready to have uh, one of your first bourbons roll on out here? So what kind of mistakes that have you think that you made that you could share to other craft distillers out there? Um, you know, one, I think uh, underestimating, um, you know, like our, our lay down stock, you know, a great example uh, I was looking at our gift shop earlier and there's like four bottles of rum sitting there because we're out. Uh, you know, we had a mad dash this summer and we're normally, you know, we only make about a hundred barrels of that rum a year. And we typically sell out of that because uh, we ate that for two years and we typically sell out of that close to the holidays. Now here we are midsummer and we're out. And so one of our biggest mistakes was underestimating again where we thought we would be. Uh, and so now we're sitting here like, oh, crap, we're going to have to wait four months before our next two-year-old pops, to, you know, his birthday. And uh, so literally what's at the stores you know, and so on is all that we can provide. And we've got orders coming in, you know, daily to fill. So I, I think that's been probably one of our, our, our biggest mistakes. I can go back four years ago, uh, I would have been putting down the, the kids' college funds and everything. Uh, in terms of not putting back enough and thinking that, you know, hey, this is going, this is going to work for us. So I think, you know, that's, that's one. Um, two, uh, I would think, you know, some, uh, some production level mistakes that we've made um, very simply have been, uh, I think, one, thinking that, hey, we can stretch this weekend out. Uh, we don't need to come in and, and do something. And then we get behind. Uh, or it's a maintenance issue. And then, and what you find is, you know, distilling and fermenting is a very scheduled process. You know, when the yeast are finally kind of dying off, 
you want to get that 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 mash out of that fermenter and into that beer well because you can pump it. You know, everything is kind of in suspension. Well, if you go an extra day or two, all of those grains are just going to settle down. You got about a nine thousand pound plug in the bottom of your tank. So you know, operationally, I think we've learned to uh, hey, you know, we we knew this. Uh, we didn't even learn from our own mistakes. And uh, but simple stuff like that. I mean, uh, we we do a lot of training, and I think we're fortunate. Um, that we've got some very skilled uh, distillers, you know, and, and, and our team that we've been lucky with a lot of that stuff. But, but I think the biggest part is just underestimating where this market can take you and what this industry can do for you. And I got one more question down to you because, um, you know, you, you've been distilling, uh, you know, World of this Trail now for uh, about a year longer than we've been doing this podcast. And I think when we started doing this podcast is when I really started paying attention to like the weather. Right. And so I think about what the past few years have been like during the summer and during the winter and even come up into this winter. Um, you know, uh, the fall time hasn't actually been cold yet. Um, mm-hmm. Last winter, actually, you, we had maybe like one or two days of snow. It really wasn't enough time that most people said that is enough time to actually change, uh, you know, turn the weather over in a wreck house. Right. Because it just wasn't cold enough for two weeks. Um, so at this point, what do you think the last, like, say, two or three years have done in regards to the weather and how that's going to affect some aging bourbon and aging stocks that you all have? Man, that's a great question. Uh, again, uh, analysis or paralysis by analysis. We, we have uh, data out our wazoo. Uh, we actually track the temperature and humidity on every roll uh, in about nine different locations in our rickhouses. So literally we know, you know, what is the weather outside doing to the inside of the barrel house? And, and really we're trying to look to see, are we going to end up with that average? We want that average barrel to be, you know, in the mid seventies uh, for a temperature and have a humidity of 60 to 70%. You know, that's why we open and close those windows on the rickhouses and all those weird things we do. It's really to keep that humidity and that temperature level in that range. And what we have seen, and definitely the data has shown, is the past really two years uh, has been warmer winters, warmer springs, and longer falls uh, than in the prior years. And and what's unique is, you know, when we go back and look at some of our notes to, uh, let's say, our one-year, our two-year, and and all the way up now to basically our four-year stuff, it's amazing that the, the, the barrels that we put back, let's say, two years ago, on a blind uh, panel, uh, sometimes we'll actually, you'll see it sitting in the four-year slot, meaning find the four-year-old in this flight. And sometimes we'll see a, a two-and-a-half or a three-year-old sitting in that slot because, for whatever reason, it's, it's aged better, it's aged faster than the same mash bill that we would have been tasting, you know, the year or two prior to that. So, so it's it seemingly, uh, you know, the, the jury's still out on that. Uh, you know, still a lot of data to collect. But it does seem like uh, the last couple of years, uh, the temperatures has uh, stayed more elevated. And from what we've seen, the whiskey seem like to be they're maturing along, you know, really well. Well, good. So we, I guess the weather hasn't truly affected it too much then. No, no. And if anything, I would think it's, you know, it's in kind of a, a positive way. You know, we still got, you know, really cold. But when you look at the, the mass in barrels and then calculate that to the mass in barrel warehouses, it takes a long time for that temperature variant to, to, to change. You know, literally it takes months of temperatures to, 
affect that, that, that temperature. So a lot of times when it's up and down, up and down, you know, it's doing nothing but looking at that average temperature. When you look at that average temperature, that's really the temperature that the barrels are, are going to. Well, awesome. Uh, so, Jane, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show today. This was uh, fantastic, you know, understanding more, not only just about Wilderness Trail, about, you know, the knowledge that you have, more about the industry, more about your views on the craft business and how this is going to be affecting, you know, long term and, you know, the, the bump on the radar that you all can be able to give the industry and stuff like that, too. So uh, I want to let you uh, give a, a plug out for, you know, where you all are located, uh, when's your stuff going to be ready, where people can find out more about you, all that good stuff. Absolutely. Come to KentuckyStraightBourbon.com. They'll lead you right to our website. Uh, visit us here in Danville. Uh, we're just a small piece off the beaten path down the roads from Four Roses and so on uh, off of Lebanon Road. And our first bourbons are going to start hitting the market in the spring of next year. Uh, we're only going to have a limited release of, we haven't determined the number yet, but it's probably under 50 barrels. So it's going to be scarce, you know, for the next couple of years until 2020, when we'll actually be in our sixth year and we're looking for a regional uh, full court press. Awesome. So Shane, thank you again for coming on the show today. Uh, for anybody else that wants to learn more about Bourbon Pursuit, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Bourbon Pursuit. Also support the show on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. And you can help this show grow uh, and bring on more cool guests like Shane to tell his story and everything like that. So uh, with that, if you have any other show suggestions, make sure you send us an email, the duo, T-H-E-D-U-O at bourbonpursuit.com, the, uh, the number one podcast on bourbon and making us the, continue to be the official podcast of bourbon. Uh, so with that, we will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.